Oh, good morning, Bethel. Yes, uh, there'll be more coming about that. We'll get some things out on the email. We've, we've talked quite a bit about it from the pulpit. Um, this coming Saturday, the first, and I have since found out it'll be the first Saturday of every month, we will gather to pray again in Chapel Hill, Brother Dan. For those of you who've been in Chapel Hill, we'll gather again at the same place. Unfortunately, I've been out of town the last two times, but I am going to attend this time. So this coming Saturday, Chapel Hill, I know um, Sister Amber's been, some others, we're going to gather and pray just like we did before. Uh, so uh, for those who you've been, if you'd like to go this Saturday, see me. I'll give you some more information as we just gather and pray. Uh, this week, uh, you may hear a little bit about this, but I, I thought it was important maybe just to mention it. Um, this Sunday evening, starting this evening until sundown Tuesday. Does anybody know what that might be? A few of you know. I knew Miss Lib would know, but a few of you would know. It's Rosh Hashanah. You say, what in the world is that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year or the first of the year. It's a Jewish holiday. That's why it's referred to as the Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah is a time of year to look back at mistakes from previous year and plan uh, for changes in the coming year. This is a similar practice to when people make resolutions part of the new calendar year. The holiday commemorates the creation of the world. It also marks the beginning of the 10 days of awe, a 10-day period of introspection and repentance. Some Jews observe Rosh Hashanah for one day, while others observe a two-day period. Work is prohibited during the holiday, and religious Jews spend most of the day in the synagogue. During the Rosh Hashanah, rabbis in their congregations read from a special prayer book known as the Machzor. They also do this during Yom Kippur. I know some of you are going to know what this is as well. Who knows what this is? This is a shafar. I wish I knew how to blow it, but I don't. I actually was at a church service not long ago where a guy did open it, open the service with this, and I just thought it was incredible. So the shafar would be blown uh, tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning outside the synagogue to let people know that it is the uh, Rosh Hashanah. And so why does this matter to us? Well, part of it is our Christian heritage. Thank God for the Jewish people. If it weren't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't have the Word. We wouldn't have the Savior. And our Isaiah, they come to know Him what? As their Messiah. And the Scriptures tells us that all these things that I just mentioned are but a shadow of things. And Christ is the substance. So what's different for us? Repentance just isn't a time frame, but it's ongoing through a personal relationship with Christ. I don't have to go to a place to meet God. The Bible tells me now that I am the temple of God, that He dwells within me. I meet Him every day, every morning, throughout the day. And then lastly, in the song Christ Alone talked about the trumpet blowing. Another trumpet is going to sound. And I think it could be soon. Will it be a shofar? I don't know. But a trumpet's going to sound. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And every person, every nation, including the Jewish people, will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Rosh Hashanah. You'll hear, I'm sure you'll hear about it as the week goes on, but I wanted to make you aware of, of, what, of that. <clears throat> if you've watched any TV over the last two weeks, you've no doubt seen the coverage of Queen Elizabeth's passing and funeral. 
I, I thought I would ask, if it, did anybody, everybody see that? But I would probably say, did anybody not see anything about Queen Elizabeth's passing and funeral? Okay. You could not turn on the television hardly or, or watch anything on the internet and not see something about that. Ten days of pomp and circumstance and celebration of her life as queen of the British monarchy for more than 70 years. Pretty incredible, really, when you think about it. Heads of state of numerous nations, including President Biden and many other presidents of the United States, attended her funeral. The entire world is aware of both her life and her death. However, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you heard about the passing of Francis Penland, who passed away the same day Queen Elizabeth did here at Duke Hospital? How many of you would raise your hand and say, I, I heard about that death? None of you would. I wouldn't have either. But I found her obituary. By all accounts, Frances was a wonderful woman. Married for over 50 years to her husband, she had a full life of, of both a successful career and family. She passed away at the age of 80. Whenever I see the passing of someone famous and all the pageantry that goes with the life and the death, I immediately think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is a reminder that no matter how wonderful and full of a life we have here, or how much struggle and sorrow, this life will come to an end and our lot here on earth means nothing in light of eternity. Although I know nothing about the faith of Miss Penland, by all accounts, Queen Elizabeth appears to have known Christ as her personal Savior. She was a personal friend of Billy Graham, and in his book, Just As I Am, he noted that he was impressed with her quiet but firm faith and often encouraged him at his crusades. It has been reported that she was heard telling a friend that she wished that Christ would return in her lifetime so that she could lay her crown at his feet. That crown was worth $5 million, by the way. If all this is true, Buckingham Palace does not hold a candle to where she is now. However, we will see from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus what we accomplish and how we live in this life means nothing in eternity. The only thing that matters eternally is what we do with the call and the conviction of Jesus, the Son of God, in our lives. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever you, you use to read God's Word with, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 16, and we'll read from verses 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was the beggar died and was carried by, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us, and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. 
Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for what we can glean for it. Thank you, Lord, that it's just as relative today as it was the day it was written. And I thank you, Lord, that we can find hope in your word. And I ask God for your anointing this morning. I thank you for your presence that's been here already in the worship. And Lord, I just pray, God, that you'll prepare me to deliver the message that you've given me and the ears to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may have noticed I titled this message. It just came to my mind. I'm not going to give you a grammar lesson this morning. But I titled it Persons, Places, and Things. And if you know, if you go way back to elementary school, you'll know a person, a place, and a thing is a what? A noun. But that's what this parable is really about. It's about persons, places, and things. There's a lot of people in this parable. Not necessarily true of all Jesus' parables. He spoke a lot in parables. I studied his parables not too long ago. Went to each one and studied it. What is a parable? It's a story generally It's generally fiction that uses everyday situations that people would be be familiar with to reveal spiritual truths and kingdom principles. That's what a parable is. And he spoke in parables, and this particular parable has a lot of people in it. It's got a rich man. It's got a man, a poor man named Lazarus. It's got Abraham. It's got angels. It's got his five brothers. There's a lot of people in this parable. There's places in here. Primarily two places. There's Abraham's bosom. We'll talk some more about that. What in the world does that mean? There's hell and torments and Hades. There's the house where the brothers live. And then there's things. And really the, re, the, the central theme of this entire story is about things. And how they compete for, our, for position of first place in our heart. And Jesus was talking to his disciples, but many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had gathered around to hear him as he talked about this parable. It's a short introduction. It just says the story of the rich man and Lazarus is one of the most sobering parables in the Bible. The reality of our choices on earth and where we place our trust and the realities of heaven and hell are more vividly stated here than anywhere in the Bible. It's a parable of contrasts. You see two people live very differently on earth but they live very differently in eternity. What made the difference? What made the difference? I said that a parable revealed spiritual truths and kingdom principles. And so what I wanted to do this morning, I have four spiritual truths that I pulled out of this. There's a lot of spiritual truths in this uh, story. You could go through this story and, and preach just on one or two of these, but there's multiple spiritual truths. But I want to introduce you to four as we look at the story. First... Our financial lot in life has nothing to do with our spiritual condition. I, think, I, I know you know that, and I imagine some of you saying, Brother Larry, I know that. But we still live in a culture that just seems to be enamored with this idea of stuff and things. We see flashy preachers, preachers with jets. I'm not here to criticize them. That's between them and God. We see people in nice cars with the vanity plate that says, Blessed. 
We see how the prosperity gospel at one time and even still seemed to get legs. That man, if I'm, I'm blessed by the Lord if I have a lot of stuff. I know wealthy people who are lost. I know wealthy people who are very godly people. I know poor people lost. And I know poor people who are very, very close to the Lord. Our financial lot in life has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with our spiritual condition. I think how we deal with God's Word, how we manage our resources, what kind of steward we are maybe with the things God's given us. I've challenged particularly our young people many times that if you'll take God's Word and you'll apply the principles of money and possessions to it as a young person, you won't be in the mess that many people are in. But it does not equate to our spiritual condition. Next, money and possessions are always competitors to our allegiance for Christ. And that's not anything new. Jesus spoke more than, 20, that's more than 2,500 passages about money and possessions, more than anything else. He spoke more about heaven and, he spoke more about money and possessions than he did heaven and hell. Why would that be? We don't have to look any further than the, the, the story or the, the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He was wealthy. He came to him and he said, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus began to reveal the commandments to him. He said, don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery. And what he does, he goes through the things, but the commandments he goes through are the commandments of man's relationship to man. And the rich young ruler feels pretty proud of himself. He says, oh, well, I'm good then. I've kept all those things from my youth. He said, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, Jesus got right to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he could look down into the heart of that man, just like he looks down into the heart of me and to you, and he knew what was first place in his heart. But Jesus went on to say, and he said this, and this has been used often, I think, misused by many in the church to vilify people who've done well in our society. So Jesus said this to him right after that encounter with that rich young man. He said, it's almost impossible, impossible. Or it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's been used to, to vilify people, maybe who've done well in life. I've always, uh, let me tell you some, some statement that's made a lot. You may have heard it, you may have said it. That every time I hear it, it kind of makes you bristle a little bit. I've heard it said about people, and you may have heard it like this they got money. You ever heard that? You know about them, oh, they got money. How do you get money? Most people I know didn't get money. They worked for it. <laughs> Most of the people, we like to vilify the wealthy in our, in, our, in our nation. Although, as we'll see shortly, really all of us are wealthy by the world standards. Most people that I know that have done very well financially in this particular society, they've built a business. They've invested. They've managed their money well. They didn't just get it. They built it. And so we have to be careful not to vilify the people like that. But it always can be a competitor for our allegiance to Christ. He said it'd be easier for a, eye, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But then he went on to say this, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's possible with God. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, as he first began to reveal the principles of the kingdom, he said, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one and hate the other. 
You can't serve both God and money, God and possessions. So there's always a compete. It always competes. And look, church, it does for me. If there's anywhere where there's tension in my own relationship with the Lord, it is I ask myself often, God, am I being completely obedient with the resources that you have given me? I ask myself that a lot. We as believers should always ask that about everything in our life. Am I being fully obedient? Am I being fully obedient to the resources you've given me in my life? Next, we have an obligation to meet the physical needs of those less fortunate. I struggle in this area, I will tell you that. In our particular culture now, we have a lot of services available to people. And I always, and I know you do as a church because I've seen you be a giving church, I always want to keep a heart that's sensitive toward people who are in need. But, I tr- but, but church, sometimes it is tough to find the line between giving to those who are really in need and enabling the lazy. Now that's hard. That not sound too good, but it happens a lot. I think that's why the local church is so important. And things like our benevolence fund, which you have been so faithful in giving. Because the local church, we know our people. And we've been able to help our people because we know them. We know the situation. They've lost a job. Something's happened. And we step in as a local church and help them in a financial need. But you see so much else going on out there. And you're like, is this person in need? Or are they gaming the system? How many of you have passed by those? I know you have if you've driven around, passed by the folks that are on every median in this city. And, and I don't know about you, but I struggle there. Because I'm like, are they really in need? Or if I give to them, am I giving to a needy person? Or am I enabling addiction? Am I enabling someone who don't work? Am I enabling someone who makes bad choices over and over and over again? And so it's a struggle. But what I can't do, church, and what we can't do as Christians is we can't look at people like that and say, you know, get a job. Look at that bum over there. Because we have to look at people and say, but for the grace of God, there I stand. That could be me standing there. There was a song, I'm going to date myself a couple times during this service, by the way, that was stoned sometime back by a group known as Bruce Hornsby and the Range. Some of you about my age will know who that was. But they had a song called That's Just the Way It Is. And the lyric said, standing in line, marking time, waiting for the welfare dime, because they can't buy a job. Then a man in a silk suit hurries by as he catches the poor old lady's eye. Just for fun, he says, get a job. You heard that song? Yeah, you have. Have you done that? Sometimes. Sometimes. But we should always understand that we have a obligation to meet the physical needs of those less fortunate. That was really the story of of Jesus. And and as I studied this, you know, I never really thought about it. It was actually at the judgment. Jesus is gathering for the judgment, the goats on one side, the sheep on the other side. And Jesus says to them, those people, he says this. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you come and visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And those people, he put on his right hand. Those were the people who were going to inherit eternal life. And then another group of people, he said the same thing to. And he said, Lord, when do we see you? He said, you didn't do these things unto me. And he cast them away. That's that's not a verse that you use to say that our salvation comes from doing good to others. But I think it reveals the heart. I think it reveals the heart. 
we have an obligation to meet the physical needs of those less fortunate. And lastly, today is the day of salvation. There's no second chances, church. There's no second chances. You don't know when you're going to leave this earth. And I know when you're young, most of our young people are sitting over here. But even when you're older, you just don't know. If you watched the news this week, you saw two young people in Orange County, 114, 118, gone. Gone. And every time I see that, I, I think, you know, they got up that day or the day before just like any other day. And they had things to do and friends to hang out with and things on their to-do list, never, ever, ever knowing this would be the last day of my day on earth. There is no second chances. Eternity is forever. So let's take a look at the, let's take a look at the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. First, a certain rich man. Many times when Jesus would start his parables, he started a certain rich man. The, you see I've got there, you may think that says dives, it says didis. That's a Latin term, it means a man of wealth. In our, in our thinking, in our world today, not only would he have been rich, he'd have been stinking rich. You ever heard that? That guy's filthy rich. He, he would have been filthy rich. But here's the thing. When we look at parables like this, a lot of times we say, well, Larry, I'm so glad you, you, you made that distinction because I'm not rich. So none of this right here that you're about to talk about from here does not apply to me. Yes, it does. Our God is not a God of America. He's a God of the world. And by the world's standards, every single one of you sitting under the sound of my voice this morning is wealthy. You drove here in a nice car. You live in a nice home. You have air conditioning and heat and food to eat and all these things. We're wealthy by the world's standards. We may not be as wealthy as this man, but we're wealthy. But we play the compare game. When it comes to the, when it comes to the obligations of the gospel, we like to compare them. We like to do the comparison game. Even, even, the, even the publican, when he went in, remember, he goes into the temple, he says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy right there. I, I pay my, I'm, I'm a little more righteous than he is. Well, I don't make as much money as he does, so that doesn't apply here. We, we compare ourselves. But the reality is that we're all wealthy as it relates to this story. He was a Jew. How do we know that? He referred to Abraham as Father Abraham. He would have known the Word of God. He would have had the Torah. He would have known the obligations that Moses gave to take care of those who were less fortunate. Have you read the... I'll challenge you this week to read. It's not a long one. Read the book, The Prophet Amos. Social justice is thrown out a lot today. And we sometimes, particularly if you're in the conservative camp, you see that, myself included, is sometimes you pull back against that and you see that as a negative word. And I think it can be. I think that term is weaponized at times. To me, the prophet Amos, his whole, his whole ridicule to the nation of Israel was about a couple things. One, the way they were treating the poor. They were very rich and they had just forgotten about the poor. And the injustices of the courts. Read the book of Amos. He would have known this. How do I know he's very wealthy? He's clothed in fine linen. Purple. Anytime you see someone in purple, you can bet they were wealthy. A purple linen was very, very expensive. You know, for sermon illustration purposes, I tried to think, what's an expensive, what, what do people wear today that's very expensive? You know, if you see, but see, I don't know because I ain't got anything expensive. And I, I don't know if maybe some of you young people could help me out and tell me what the fashion trend is. If you see somebody wearing this, then it seems they're wealthy. And I typically don't wear a suit when I preach, but I did this morning because I wanted to wear the closest thing I had. 
This is a Tommy Hilfiger suit. Now, I don't know if Tommy Hilfiger is still considered nice. When I was a little bit younger, it was. It was nice. I mean, it was ex considered an expensive brand suit. But for those of you who know me and know me well, if I've got anything on that might be slightly expensive, I either got it real cheap or I got it at the consignment store. <laughs> and so I went to Macy's at Northgate when it was closing. Y'all remember that? There used to be a Macy's there. It was closing. And, and I walked in, and they had already slashed everything, and I walked in there, and the, the racks were just picked through, nothing hardly left in the store. And I walked over to the men's department, I looked up, and this suit was hanging there. And I said, well, hmm. So I took it off, looked at the size. I want you to know it fit me without an alteration. That is very uncommon. I had the Lord's favor that day. I mean, it was incredible. And so that's the closest thing I have to anything that, that, that's wealthy, but not this man. He was very, very wealthy. He lived well every day. In our culture today, we would think of someone like Donald Trump before he becomes such a flashpoint of politics. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, very, very wealthy man. But here's the thing, church. He lived like that. He wore fine stuff. He ate the best meals. He had a great life. But guess what? He died. He died. Let's look at a certain beggar. His name was Lazarus. Eleazar is how that would have been interpreted. It means God helps. God helps. The personal name here, which is the only time Jesus uses a personal name in a parable, suggested that it actually may have been an eyewitness account. It may not have been just a story. This may have been something that actually happened and the Lord himself watched it happen. How did he live? The Bible says he laid at the rich man's gate. That was not uncommon back then. Understand, church, when the Bible was written, there was not much in the way of a middle class. You were either rich or poor, and there was a whole lot more poor than there was rich. And so it wasn't uncommon to go and lay at a gate of someone who was rich and hoping that they would give alms or they would give you something. And that's what this man did. He laid there hoping that the rich man would give him something or help him in his time of need. He was full of sores and in need, desiring the crumbs of the rich man's table. No social services, no Section 8, no food stamps. And I thank God for a nation that takes care of our poor. But, but I'm afraid that in some ways the, the government has taken over the church's responsibility. And that should have never happened. Maybe he went through the trash Maybe after the end of the day, he would go in and rummage through the rich man's trash just to get something to eat. The dogs would look his sores. There was no Duke Hospital, no free clinic. That's how he lived every day. But also, he died. He died. So what a contrast between a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus on this earth. But let's look at eternity. Let's look at eternity. The Bible says the rich man, when he opened his eyes, he was in hell in torments. Why was he in hell? It was not because of his wealth. As a matter of fact, one of the key figures of this story was Abraham. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He's the father of our faith. He was very wealthy. It was not because of his wealth. Many rich people in the Bible, Abraham, Solomon, King David, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave, was wealthy and gave a tomb for Jesus to be buried in. It wasn't not the wealth. 
He could see Abraham and a Lazarus afar off. He could see them. That tells me he retained his physical body and his senses. One thing about the Christian faith is that we honor the body. We believe in a bodily. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it was a bodily resurrection. When we see our loved ones again in heaven, it'll be a bodily resurrection. We'll recognize each other. We'll know each other. And the rich man retained his senses. Think about it. He, he could see Abraham. He said, send him over here to touch my tongue. There's a, there was a, there's a doctrine that was running around for a while, still does in some circles. You may have heard of it called annihilationism. And there's those who want to say, well, there's really no hell. There's no eternal torments. When you die, if you're not saved, if you're not in Christ, you just cease to exist. It's called annihilationism. Not according to this. And not according to Jesus many times. Hell is a real place. And people live there eternally in torments. Something that was really amazing to me when I read this and studied it is this. He retained his sense of pride and indifference towards Lazarus. Here he is in eternity. And he won't even say Lazarus. Not once does he say, Lazarus, I know I walked by you every day. I'm sorry. I should have, I should have helped you, Lazarus. I should have invited you into my home, Lazarus. I should have cared for you. I had plenty of money, Lazarus. I had plenty to help you. He didn't say that. Even he could see my... He told Abraham, he said, hey, he's still barking out orders. Send Lazarus over here and tell him to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. He was still indifferent toward Lazarus. It reminds me of Revelation 9 and 21 where the judgments are being poured out on the earth. The wrath of God is being poured out. A third of mankind has been killed. And the Bible says that they would not repent. That people would still not repent. They would not repent. They would not repent of their murder. They would not repent of their sorceries. And they would not repent of their theft and, and sexual immorality. And I think about what's going on in our nation today. And the cultural battles are, are swirling around those things. Sexual immorality, sorceries. The, the Greek word is pharmakia, where we get our, our word pharmacy. The drug addictions in this nation is going crazy. Murders. That to me is the abortion industry. And people will get angry with God. They will not repent, even under judgment. And it seems here that it Lazarus, he just would not. But now in eternity, Lazarus was a beggar in need. He said, I beg you, Father uh, Abraham. His money meant nothing to him. He had all the nice things. Now, what would this man give just to have a drop of water put on his tongue? What would he give? Probably everything he has. His money means absolutely nothing. I think about the uh, parable Jesus told about another certain rich man in Luke 12, 16 through 21. And in that story, this man, things were going great for him. He was having a bumper year, his crops. It would be like us today. Our 401ks might be booming. Our investments are doing great. Everything's going wonderful. Man, I'm on the mountaintop. Things are going great. And, the, and then the rich man says, what do I do now? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And I'm going to put more stuff. And I'm going to invest more. And I'm going to save more. And I'm going to do more. 
And Jesus looked at him and said, you fool. This very hour, your life will be demanded from you. Then who's your stuff going to be? Who's it going to belong to? I experienced that personally more than ever when my mom passed away. When my mom passed away, we sold her house, her and dad's house. And everything that she owned, anything that was, had any, that was anything decent, we took to Goodwill. Anything that had any sentimental value, we kept. And I stood there. We had one of them big dumpsters dropped outside the house, and I held her purse. And it wasn't nothing special about the purse, but I could not bring myself to throw it in the dumpster. So I just put it in my truck, and it stayed in there for a couple years until I finally felt like it's time to get rid of it. But as I stood outside that dumpster with that purse, it dawned on me more than ever. Everything that my mom had of any material wealth was had either been given away or it was in a dumpster. And church, everything that we do, that we, it seems that our culture, myself included, work so hard for to have this, to have that, to do this, to do that, it's going to the trash. The only thing that has eternal value is the things that we do for the kingdom of God and the decisions that we make for the Lord. And then you can really enjoy your stuff once you have made that decision. But later in that parable, he did say this. He said, so it is with people who are not, are not rich towards God or rich towards the things of the world and not rich towards God. He qualified that. It wasn't just the wealth. And lastly, he remembered lost opportunities. I think that will probably be one of the hardest things for people who, who spend eternity separated from the Lord. They're going to remember. They're going to remember the preacher in the pulpit. They're going to remember the street preacher. They will remember their loved ones or their friends who tried to share the gospel with them and the chances that they had. They will remember. And the squandered opportunities to accept the Lord as their Savior. They're going to remember. He did. He remembered lost opportunities. Let's look at Lazarus in eternity. He says he was carried by the angels. To where? To Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? What does that mean? Prior to the resurrection, there's some debate in, in, amongst theologians on this, but most are in agreement. Prior to the resurrection, when people died, including the Old Testament saints, everyone went down to Sheol. It's known as the grave. It was also known as Hades. So you, you may see that in your scripture sometime. Sheol or Hades, everyone who died went down. It was divided into two chambers. There was torments. And there was Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise. How do we know that? You remember when Jesus was on the cross? He had a thief on each side of him. One of them was ridiculing him. Said, hey, if you're really who you are, save yourself and save us too while you're at it. Ridiculing him. The other one on the side recognized who he was. Submitted himself to him. Said, Lord. He looked at the other thief. He said, hey, we're up here because we deserve to be up here. He's done nothing wrong. He recognized in his heart and somewhere, somehow submitted himself to the, to the love and the call of Christ. And Jesus looked at him and said what? Today you shall be with me where? In paradise. In paradise. So you had two chambers. You had Hades or hell. And you had Abraham's bosom in paradise. First, this is the only place where this is mentioned in the Bible. But the rabbi, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were listening to this, 
who thought that wealth did mean that you were blessed by God. They would have been very familiar with this as I studied this. It, would have, it was taught quite a bit in the rabbinical teachings. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And so what I think happened, what most things happened when Jesus died, if you, I'm not going to spend much time on this in Ephesians 4, 1 Peter, and even the Apostles' Creed. It speaks of Jesus descending, descending into Sheol or Hades when he was crucified. What happened down there? Well, there's a lot of debate on that. I think one part of it, I think he went over to Hades or hell. The Bible says where the demon spirits were of the days of Noah. And I think he went over there to say, at Easter time, I preached a message called Christ the Victor, Christos Victor, which is what we mean. I think he went over there to say, look at, look at all the uh, demons uh, of hell and say, I am victorious. You tried to kill me. I am alive. And then I think he walked over to Abraham's bosom or paradise. I don't know that this happened, but I know the thief went with him. I think he walked in and there is Moses and Noah and all the saints of the Old Testament. He says, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Rahab is down there. I am he who you have been waiting on. I am the promised Messiah. I have brought one with me. And I think he emptied that chamber and he ushered them right into the presence of God. That's what happened. I believe that. Why? Because the, 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 the blood of goats and bulls, the Bible tells us it couldn't, it couldn't forgive sin. It could cover the sin. It could cover the sin. But Jesus' blood, we were saying about it this morning, it could forgive the sin. And he ushered, he emptied that chamber. And the chamber that's still there torments, there's people still there. That one will be emptied one day as well. It will be emptied at the final judgment and cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and everyone else. That's what happened. Abraham's bosom. And he was comforted there. I'm going to ask Matt and the team if they will to come forward. I'm going to end with this. Most important thing of this entire parable, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. This rich man wanted to warn his five brothers. He knew there was, nothing, there was no help for him. But he said, look, just go tell my brothers. I, I don't want my brothers to come here. And I know many of you here have lost loved ones. I do. And you warn them and you tell them. But if you don't, warn them and tell them. He didn't want his brothers to come there. But what the Lord said in this story is actually... Pretty powerful. Didn't really think about it till I studied it. He said this. They have Moses and the prophets. What did he mean by that? They and we have the word of God. They and we have the word of God. And he said if they won't believe the word of God, they won't believe even if one rose from the dead. I thought about 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Paul was talking to Timothy. He was preparing him for the ministry. And he said this in 2 Timothy 3 and 15. He said, but he said that from your childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wealthy. Is that? Is it able to give you nice stuff? Is it able for you to have your best life now? Is that what the Scriptures are for? No. He said it's to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Everything you need to know for salvation, God has given us. We, I thank God for that we believe in the gifts here. But He has revealed Himself to all of us in His Word. And it's just we take it for granted because we have such access to it. But we want, those who are in eternity want, who are lost, they will remember this Word. It is a powerful statement for both the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's what they said. That's what Jesus was saying. They got Moses and the prophets. The rich man, he knew he had the Torah. He knew the warnings of the prophets. He knew all the times that Moses challenged to take care of the poor. He had the book of Amos that I spoke about. He had all those things. But it really didn't mean that much because he had it good. And that can happen to us as individuals. And quite frankly, right now, I think that's what's happened to America. We got it good. And he said, but if one would return from the dead. He said, no, if they don't believe him, they won't believe him if one returns from the dead. And we have one that's returned from the dead. Now, I had a privilege to go to Jerusalem and walk into a tomb where Jesus of Nazareth was laid and is empty. And he's not been seen since the resurrection. Since, he has, since the ascension, I'm sorry. He's not been seen since the ascension. But he's coming back. He is coming back. And he said this, if they, if they see that, they will repent. And, and, and that's, what, that's what activates that forgiveness of the Lord, is just simply when we repent. When we come before him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've, I've, I've broken your law. I can't keep your standard. And when that's done with a true heart, an exchange takes place. I can't even hardly fathom it. But the Bible tells me, and I believe this on faith, that He gives me His righteousness and He takes my sin. And He makes me a candidate for heaven. And I submit myself then to His Lordship. I asked Matt and this team this morning to sing about the blood reaching to the highest mountain and flowing to the lowest valley. Maybe your life is on the mountaintop. Maybe things are going great for you. I mean, you got a good job, all your bills are paid, you got a little jingle in your pocket, you're wearing a Tommy Hill figure or even a nicer suit. I don't know. Maybe things are going great for you. The blood of Jesus Christ reaches up there. It reaches there. The Queen Elizabeth had everything. She had everything this world could offer. But I think she recognized none of it means anything without the blood of Jesus. Maybe life is hard for you. Maybe there's... Maybe he's struggling financially. Maybe there's some physical sickness. Maybe there's some things that just has you in the valley. The blood of Jesus flows to the lowest valley. And he gives us strength from day to day. What a story. What a contrast. What about you this morning? What about you? If everyone would please stand. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, if you're here this morning and you said, Larry, I don't know. I'm not sure I know where I'm going to spend eternity. Because there's no, they made it clear here, there's no going from one to the other. Once it's there, it's there. And Jesus died on that cross. He gave us everything we need to inherit eternal life. And we just have to receive it.
And so as I pray, if, you, if that's you this morning, you don't know where you would spend eternity, come to the altar. Let us pray with you. Just come and submit yourself to Him. Lord, I thank You for Your Word, God. What, what a story. Lord, what a story of contrasts. Of how we live on earth and then how we will live in eternity. And primarily, Lord, You said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And if there's anyone here today that's lost and your Holy Spirit is churning in their spirit, you're drawing them to yourself, God. May they set aside their pride, set aside the, the things that hinders them. God, in this parable, it was money. It can be relationships. It can be material things. It can be a lot of things, Lord. We have to all ask ourselves, what is number one? What sets on the throne of my heart? And if there's anything, Lord, in me that sets on the throne of my heart, God, I ask, Lord, that you convict me and I put you in your rightful place. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And most of all, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for salvation. Matt and the team are going to sing in just a minute. I'm going to ask everyone, if they will, to come to the altar. We'd like to end our service at the altar and we're going to pray for any needs that you may have. So if everyone will come.